Liv, welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. It's uh, great to have you on. Thanks for having me again. Maybe you could uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Very briefly, I was a professional poker player for most of my career. And now I work as a kind of communicator, filmmaker, person who talks a lot about reducing, how to reduce global catastrophic and existential risk, um, particularly through a lens of sort of um, game theory and uh, avoiding race to the bottom scenarios. Great. So we're going to talk about artificial intelligence in in this episode. Um, but since you're very knowledgeable about poker, I think that would be a great entry to 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 talk about AI. So a problem that or a, a situation that I've encountered because I'm not very good at poker is that I can sometimes beat players who are very good at poker. So is it possible to be so bad at poker or so so unknowledgeable about poker that you can actually that you play so chaotically that you can win about uh, you, you can win over much better players. Uh, yeah, this is a kind of common mis- misconception. You know, it's certainly true that if you're so bad at poker that you you don't even know what hand beats what, that you are hard. It's hard for a pro to read you essentially because you, you know you, how can you read someone who doesn't even know what what they're doing. Um, but. The point is, is that the pro will be able to, you know, choose which hands they they play in a way that uh, they're always going to be just making better decisions. And so, over a very short time period, then yes, sure, uh, a complete, you know, a random newbie player could, in theory, beat a pro just because they get better cards. But over any kind of meaningful sample size, and I'm talking like tiny sample size, like. 20 hands onwards the, the the pro is almost always going to win uh because they're just doing better hand selection okay so have you been following a progress in poker ai uh, i have certainly <laughs> yeah i was watching it because i mean i you know when i was still playing i was like damn is this thing gonna take my job and how how good are ais at playing poker now i think it's fair to say that the best poker and when i say poker i mean like no limit hold'em um i don't know if they've built AIs for different variants, but uh, No Limit Hold'em is the most popular game, and the best poker player in the world is for sure an AI at this point. And and how long has this been the case? Uh, which year did uh, the AIs become better than than humans? Uh, I think it was 2017. Um, a team at Carnegie Mellon University they built this thing called Libratus, and I remember they like sort of issued a challenge to the poker community for us to send our best one-on-one players, which is like heads, you know, we call it heads up, uh, and we sent four. Well, we four very good poker players who have a lot of experience in that format went and played against this thing. Um, they actually played against an earlier version of it the year before, and the the, the humans won. But in 2017, they played against it again over a very large sample size as well. You know, at least a statistically significant one. I think it was hundred thousand hands or that thereabouts. Um, and the AI beat all four of them, so a fairly decisive victory. Um, and that was like, it was such a groundbreaking moment because I think most people in poker assumed that, it, you know, it's such a, it's such a complex game in terms of state space complexity. It has a 10 billion times more uh, state space complexity than Go, which, you know, that got defeated by an AI in 2015. So everyone, I think everyone assumed, oh, like poker's fine for at least another decade. Wasn't the case. <laughs> 
What's interesting about poker is that there's hidden information. Or at least that's one of the interesting things about poker. What does it tell you that that AIs are able to operate in an environment with with hidden information? And perhaps talk a bit about what hidden information is, what it means for a game to have hidden information. So like a game of chess, for example, you know, it's a zero sum game like poker. Um, but in chess, both opponents, both players have access to exactly the same information, you know, in terms of like the, the game state, uh, where the pieces are, etc. cetera. Um, whereas in poker, you have, you know, there are cards that are face up in the middle that constitute, uh, constitute the hands, but everyone also has their own private cards. Usually it's two. Um, and so that is literally hidden information that is only accessible to you. Um, and similarly, your opponents have their own hidden information. So that's what that means. And then in terms of what, what that, you know, how that manifests for AIs, you know, when, whether it's a human or an AI, when you're, when you're playing poker, what you're trying to do is essentially narrow down the range of uncertainty you have about that hidden information that your opponent has. Um, while simultaneously keeping the the range of possible states of hidden information that you have as perceived by your opponents as wide as possible. So again, whether human or AI, like that, those are the like the types of ca- calculation that is going on, and it's it, it's not people people often get a little confused, like oh, what does it mean? Like an, an AI can bluff? Wow, that's that seems like a very human thing, but the, uh, poker, like most other games, is mathematically computable. We now know that you know it's governed by the laws of game theory. Um, there are Nash equilibria, that kind of thing, um, and because it's a fundamentally mathematical game, it, it, it's essentially computable um, if you build a smart enough, uh, you know, neural net architecture, which is beyond my pay grade to explain fully how it works, um, but because they're computable games, it doesn't matter that there's hidden information. There's the type of sort of narrowing down process that you're trying to do the deduction process and similarly like the bluffing is what you do to try and keep that you know as i said that perceived range that your opponent sees you, you're trying to maximize deception um but those are like fundamentally like computable things and that's why you can build an ai for it and i'm assuming that these ais they don't play poker like you do they don't play uh, play poker like a human so for example they they probably don't have access to a video feed of their opponents and you know, trying to to read their facial expressions to 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 get information about which cards their opponents have. Is it is it interesting to you that that the game of poker can be played entirely uh, using only the the information in the cards, for example? Right. Yeah. The, the good way of putting it is like, you know, when you play online poker, you have information about how you know the the chips that people bet, how much they bet, um, the cards that come out. So you could call that like core game information. And then on top of that, this is, there's this like meta layer of information, such as the length of time someone takes to make a decision, um, the, the, the facial expressions they pull, the words they say, um, the vibe they essentially give you. And you're right that at least the current types of AIs that have been built don't have access to any of that meta information. But the thing is, is that much of poker, in fact, the vast majority of hands that have ever been played of poker at this point have been played online, where none of that meta information is available either. You know, there's humans playing against each other online, but they are simply making their decisions based on the on the you know the 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 cards and the and the and the chip, the betting information. 
So it's you're right that it's 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 playing slightly different to like how if the information available is not the same as what you'd have in a live casino, but it's still very much poker. Like most top professionals these days are extremely comfortable in both formats and would arguably like the majority of like poker skill comes from that core information, the vast majority, like the, the, like the meta information, the reading body language, et cetera, is kind of like the, the cherry on top. It's perhaps something that, that we see a lot of in movies, but in the real game, it's, it's not as important as, as I might think. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone thinks, and I mean, understandably amateurs, you know, because they don't understand, they're not familiar with like the, the the nitty gritty the maths of it um that level of strategy all they can rely on is like reading people because they're like well i i at least i kind of know what people look like when they're lying and that sort of thing so they try and they, they they're sort of playing only in that realm because they don't understand the odds etc um but as soon as you actually start digging into studying the game it's all about the odds well not all but like the majority of it is is about the sort of the game theoretic and odd stuff it's an interesting thing that that humans or new poker players would begin by trying to study their the, the faces of their opponents because this is a, something that humans are extremely good at uh, naturally, whereas whereas poker is an extremely unnatural thing. It's it's very difficult. You you have to spend a long time learning how to do it. So of course uh, humans revert to what we're naturally good at, um, but perhaps. That just means that new players uh, get destroyed by by more experienced players. By and large, yes. <laughs> okay, so w- what does it uh, what does it say that uh, what does it tell you that AIs can play poker? Do, could this generalize to, for example, uh, corporate uh, negotiations, where the where this this could also be seen as as uh, as perhaps a, a a game with hidden information? You're trying to negotiate a price, and you don't know what. With the which cards uh, say the the opponents uh, are are holding? Do you think that the fact that AIs can can be very capable in hidden information games says something about their ability to operate uh, in the in the more in the world more generally? I would be surprised if it would if it doesn't generalize to an extent. You know, if there's certainly some kind of fairly simplified, simulatable negotiation in a in a real world scenario, you know peace negotiations or something like that i i that would be really cool to have an ai that could help facilitate that um and i don't see why it it shouldn't um and i mean we've seen other like types of like generalized ais like alpha zero for example right i mean now that those were non-hidden information games it was uh able to deduce how you know how to be the best player in the world at chess uh shogi and go right um, so that was an example of an AI being able to generalize across different sort of game formats, uh, or different games at least. Um, and I'm sure the same would apply with, well, I expect the same would apply with hidden information games. This is a strategy that uh, the AI lab DeepMind has has um, been working on for a number of years. So starting with with very simple games and then trying to generalize to more complex games and then perhaps to games that resemble uh, real life more and more. So for example, uh, there's work being done on playing the game Diplomacy, which is a a very simple version of real diplomacy. Um, and so 
it is an it is an interesting strategy to start with simple games and then move into the real world. One one thing that that I often hear chess players and poker players talk about it is all of the life lessons you can get from from playing chess or poker. It, do you think do you think this this is overplayed or do you think this there's actually something there? Do you think there are general life lessons from from poker and chess? <laughs> well, I mean, you're definitely you're preaching to the choir here because I I, I literally gave my TED talk on exactly this topic. <laughs> uh, it's like it was three life lessons from poker. Um, yes, I can't speak for chess so much. Um, you know, I love chess. I love it so much. I had to delete the app because I got addicted. Um, but I'm not very good. But poker in particular has so many life lessons. You know, unlike chess, it, it has hidden information, which is certainly true in life, right? It's very rare that we have a you know a situation in life where we have exactly symmetric information as our, as everyone else if we're like competing for something. But also, more importantly, it's uh, it has a role of luck. There's randomness in poker. You know, sample sizes matter, etc. So there's this like noise factor that you have to deal with when it comes to like results that you don't necessarily have in chess. You know, it's it. If I sat down against Magnus Carlsen, he's going to beat me. Close to 100% of the time. There might be a few instances where he has like some kind of, I don't know, an embolism, embolism or something. But, um, you know, whereas I, you know, you, someone who's bad at poker plays against me, they might be, you know, and depending on the sample size, they might beat me pretty often. So again, that's another reason why it's far more relatable to the types of real life decision making that we make. Because, you know, when we have a run of success, um, or a run of failure, it's one of the hardest things to do is to figure out how much of that was down to our own strategies, you know, either being being wrong um, or or being very right versus just us getting lucky or unlucky. And and that's, you know, that's arguably one of the biggest challenges to all, all forms of decision-making. So I mentioned um, the plan of generalizing from small games into into bigger games and longer lasting games that's a, a plan associated with uh, DeepMind. another strategy is the one associated with open ai which is to feed these uh, large ai models more and more data using more and more compute and what comes out as an output is extremely interesting so i i assume you've played around with these uh, generative models these large language models just in a subjective sense, uh, how impressed are you by these models? I mean, they're insane. I don't, the, 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 the GBT4 demo was literally yesterday, and it was just one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Like, he, you know, he took, wrote down a design, like a kind of rough design, of a word des- in, in words, like of a joke website, like have a title and then a, joke one that someone presses enter on and then joke two press enter on and then uploaded a, like a crappy photo of that to the to the chat and then it wrote you the code of how to build that website and then you could copy paste that code into you know into an html builder and boom like i've never seen, like it's literal magic you know i, I my friend tim urban uh, wrote this amazing piece of uh, on on his blog wait but why about like the, how the gap with which the gap of time it would take to like blow someone's mind to the point where they were like, I don't understand reality anymore. is getting shorter and shorter. You know, it's like you took someone from the stone ages and brought them to, to Rome, like their mind would break. You know, that's like a 50,000 year gap or whatever. 
someone from Rome and bring them to 19th century London. Mind blown. And so on. This gap keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like, I think if you took me from 10 years ago, even, you know, like, or like certainly from 15 years ago where we've just gotten iPhones and showed that, I think most people's minds would be at the equivalent level of blown. Um, and, and I like, imagine what it's going to be in three years time. Like, it's just, it's crazy. Um, so yes, <laughs> it's short. I am very impressed. I don't like to use the word impressed because it doesn't quite, it's, it's a little too, it doesn't fully encapsulate the simultaneous wonder, but also horror at, at the, like, just like the almost bipolarness of this like junction that we are standing on of whether these things are going to be the best thing we've ever built or the worst thing. Um, and it, uh, it, it's, it's just very intense. <laughs> so you've been uh, warning about uh, dangers from AI for at least five years, perhaps since uh, 2016. Uh, in that time, uh, have you been, you've, it's fair to say that you've been surprised by the rate of progress? In the beginning, like not, you know, that much. Uh, I think that, you know, the joke has always been that AI is 20 years away, kind of like, you know, with a nuclear fusion always being 30 years away. And it always felt sort of, you know, 10 years ago, it felt like the earliest timelines were sort of to AGI were roughly 10 years. Um, and that always felt like way too short for me internally. And that kind of felt the same even five years ago. It was like, yeah, it's still like, uh, but now for the first time, the, the last few months is the first time I've like, like internally felt like, holy shit, AGI is not only a po actual real possibility. It always felt like this abstract thing that's like, eh. But now I can actually picture that it's it's not just possible, but that it's way closer than like, like it's it, it, if it's going to happen, it's definitely going to happen in our lifetimes. That's for sure. And I, it just, it's the first time I've ever like really saliently felt that. And it's quite, I, don't, I, I yeah, it, it's a very overwhelming feeling. I, as I say, simultaneously excited and terrified. So is this, does this feeling come from interacting with the models or just seeing how capable large language models are? Actually, let's run, I haven't even done that much interacting with them. I mean, I have a bit, you know, I've, I've used Midjourney a bunch. I think it's super impressive. Everyone always jokes that like, oh, you know, the first things to go will be like the accountants and um, the more like technical mundane type things and the arts will be the last thing to go. We'll never be able to recreate human creativity in art, but it turns out it's actually kind of the other way around. The, the, the sort of the creative things are actually easier for an AI to do. I think because we have, it's okay to have errors. In fact, errors even contribute to like the style, the quirk of a piece of art. Um, they, that's what makes it kind of interesting. Um, whereas like, you know, with self-driving cars, for example, you, you can't, you can't have an error of like one in a hundred or one in a thousand or even one in a, you know, 10 million. It's like got to be one in a billions. Um, so that's why it's a, like a harder problem. But what's like really gotten me with like these LLMs is, you know, yes, we, it's, you know, one explanation of what's going on is that it is just simply really good at predicting what the next word is. And this gives the impression therefore of understanding and of intelligence, but I defy anyone to like watch that GPT-4 demo yesterday um, or like really like throw like a bunch of sort of range of problems at it and not like it, it, it's the solutions it's gi giving. Like there's so much like context switch switching and concept switching that it seems to be doing. There has to be some kind of 
rudimentary, well, not even rudimentary, but some kind of like very alien under, like world model. It's, it, 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 it seems like even from this like just huge corpus of text and a bunch of parameters, it's possible for some kind of conceptual understanding, even though it might not be anything like the way a human understands concepts, it, some kind of world, view, world models are being built and so if, if anything, it's like a sort of, I'm, I'm in awe at like the power of emergence because it just seems like the more you like add on, I think people expected that as you added parameters, it would kind of be like a sort of like flattening curve and, it, you know, it, you, you can keep adding more and more parameters, but like you sort of reaching some kind of hot limit, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The, the, the curve, curve is carrying on and in some ways even like, I might even have like step functions in it where like new layers of emergence are happening that we just can't fundamentally predict. Um, and that's why it's so like thrilling, but also like, man, like <laughs> we, we like even the top researchers can't, they don't actually understand what's going on inside it. And I think that's what people don't appreciate. Like, oh, it's, well, it's fine. We you know it's just a large language model that's doing this. Like, no, like the, the researchers themselves are stunned and they don't like know how it's coming to the concepts and the conclusions it is. It's, it's, it, I don't know. Like, it feels just very Pandora's boxy. Even if a large language model is simply trying to predict the next token, the next letter, or the next word, it might be useful for for such a predicting ta uh, prediction task to develop world models, to develop concepts. But these concepts are probably not the concepts that that we are using. So. Does it, doesn't it feel weird to you that, that these AIs might be developing their own concepts and that those concepts might be more useful for task solving than the concepts that humans use? Uh, I mean, definitely possible. You know, again, I can't say more than speculate here. Um, it's, it's definitely possible that they could be much more useful. It's also definitely possible that they are operating in a sort of realm of intelligence that we've just like can't literally can't visualize with our with our carbon-based meat-based brains one thing that does concern me um is you know given that these are built off corpus you know the corpus of texts most of these things are now built off are like internet-based texts is the internet is not a true representation of the way humanity interacts with each other the average type of, and anyone who says that it is is like delusional and I like need to go it needs to go outside and and touch grass and like hang out with people in a nice loving environment or something because it's like by definition when you type something into a in, in into a computer even if you like do you're an incredible writer it, it, there is information loss going in you know into a, like a if you're having a text conversation with someone as opposed to speaking to them in person there is, you are missing out on all, like kind of like at the beginning of this, we talked about the meta information in the poker game. You've got the meats and potatoes, but then there's all this like sort of fluff uh, as well. You're losing all the fluff, but it's still very important information. Like, you know, we have eye contact with one another. Even when we're like talking like this through video, we're missing out on some information exchange that we would have, that we would be getting in person. It's still a lot better than if we were typing to one another, but it, you're, you're, it's a huge sort of compression algorithm that's going on. and by definition, that is dehumanizing and it's losing a lot of the like, it seems to be that that makes us tend to be a little bit more aggressive than we would used to be. We, we tend to be more bad faith interpreting each other because we don't, we're missing out all the like nuance and context that comes with when someone says something. And so it concerns me that we are training 
a huge body of text of which a disproportionate amount compared to like reality is a lot more hostile um, and a lot more, you know, disingenuous um, or exaggerated. You know, there's like all other types of incentives that are going on that make, that can like skew a body of text, you know, cap, uh, market incentives, et cetera, that can skew a body of text away from like what true authentic human interaction is. Um, so I think that's something we need to be a little bit more mindful of. That definitely seems like a, a, a real problem to me. Uh, perhaps on the other side, you could say that uh, they might also be training on the best parts of humanity. For example, our best uh, books, the best books ever written, where people might be interacting, the characters in the books might be interacting in idealized ways. Um, you, they might also be training uh, in the future on on video, so movies and, and and YouTube videos, where people also might be interacting in in a in a way that that's 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 in a sense superhuman because it, it because it's an act. Um, but so your worry here is that the AIs will learn will will learn something about humans that is not uh, a true representation uh, of of who we are. Yes. And even with something like movies, you know, movies are still an oversimplification of reality. They're, movies are great. Even, even the best, you know, the, 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 some of the best stories, they're written for story. They're written for like comp compellingness as opposed to accuracy. And that's not necessarily, you know, I think there will be some upsides from that. But, you know, like part of the issue we're facing in, in um, again, with like po political polarization, div division, et cetera, like culture wars, whatever you want to call it, is that the medium of media uh, and the bad incentives that often drive the media to like do, you know, put more negative or inflammatory or rage-baity stories that, you know, because that gets more clicks, it, 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 it sort of paints, again, inherently de dehumanizing, but it also like it thrives off this picture of like the good guys and the bad guys, the us and them. Um, my, my friend Tim calls it the political Disneyland, you know, where we, we all, we've all seen Disney movies. It's you've got the good guy and the good guy is so good and they're so nice. And then there's the bad guy and the bad guy is just bad, you know, and like you don't, like we, there's, there's very little nuance there. Um, and in reality, like life is not like that. You know, the most contentious culture war issues are an issue because there are truly very valid perspectives that are clashing and we need to figure out what, what, you know, what, 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 you know, that people, again, if people could get in a room and really talk it out and like do sort of like double crux reductionism and all these like cool techniques to actually get to the, like the core disagreement, they would find that actually they're much more aligned than they really are. And so movies by and large are, are these like overly simplified, you've got the good guys and the bad guys. And some good movies do try and sort of show the bad side of the hero and the, and the good side of the villain sometimes, but it's still insufficient. Um, so again, that's why I think it, those things need to come with a big, a big asterisk. When I've uh, interacted with these large language models, I've often been impressed with how human they seem to me. Do you think that in the future, it will be a, a societal problem that uh, people who are interacting with these AI models treat them as human, even though they aren't? So is it a problem to anthropomorphize these models? It's. A, I think it's a problem, but it also could be a good thing. So the problems could arise through, you know, people spending more and more time, you know, like the, like the her movie, right? I don't think it's. I think it's if it's not already happening because I noticed some. I, I even know a couple of people who seem to be a little overly attached to Sydney. 
you know, the 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 big thing, like they they saw her as female. Um, you know, they were already anthropomorphizing and feeling like like a like a form of love towards this thing that could, if it meant that they then sort of became more and more isolated from society and other humans, could become a problem. Um, if you know, if if too much of your population is like living alone and like not getting real human connection, I think that's that that seems like a bit of a recipe for disaster. But on the flip side, I am also actually very concerned that there is, because we don't even understand the nature of consciousness in, in biological life, we certainly don't understand the nature of consciousness and sentience in, um, in silicon-based life. If, if, even if it's only a tiny chance that we are building something that is, that is actually sentient and therefore able to suffer and, and, and like have essentially some form of weird emotion that could be negative because there's a chance that we might be making billions and billions and billions of these things and like turning them on and off and they might be having experiences that we can't even fathom, there should be some moral concern about that too. So I'm also like sort of simultaneously concerned that we are not treating them, like like if in doubt, treat them nicely. I find like, yeah, when I was chatting with GPT-4 yesterday, I'm saying pleases and thank yous. I'm, I, I want to be, on the you know on the off chance that this thing is actually experiencing something i want to be nice to it because also like if we imagine if people then start moving to the majority of their conversations with these ai these ais but then think that they are worthless you know don't don't have any moral value that will also again if even in the case that the ais actually have no moral value whatsoever it's still training people to be shitty to something and that is then behavior that then they will carry on out to humans as well, because these things appear human-like. Like if someone is able to be psychopathic to a very Turing test passing AI machine, treat it terribly, that there is a higher probability that they will do the same thing to a human as well. Um, and I think that is, you know, worth worth considering in the very complex moral calculus that needs to be going on uh, with anyone who is building these things. I don't actually think we will be able to to treat these models very badly. It will it will feel too in uh, inhuman for us to do so. I disagree. I think people will be. I think some people like have very sadistic tendencies and will try to cause suffering as much as they can. So there will always be psychopaths, but do you, do you think that uh, normal people will be able to treat these uh, models very badly? Um, what 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 was it that that caused you to say please and thank you to GPT four for example? I guess just like hedging <laughs> hedging my uncertainty about what it is I'm talking to, um, and you know up, the, the upbringing I had was to be nice to people, especially you know if you don't know someone, treat them like you would like to be treated yourself. Um, treat people with respect as much as possible. Um, so that's what really like made me do it. I was like, I don't know what I'm interacting with. And again, even if this thing isn't sentient, I know that it's learning off the conversations that it has. You know, one way of looking at these LLMs is that they are essentially holding up a mirror to like, to an extent to like the online version of humanity. Again, not real humanity, as I've said, you know, complexity loss and so on, but it, if you garbage in, then garbage out. So if we keep feeding this with more and more like negative stuff or bad interactions and nasty, nasty, nasty things, it's going to become essentially nastier, even if it isn't sentient, even if it's not suffering. Um, so there's just like so many reasons to be nice to them. 
that's not to say that we shouldn't like, you know, I don't, you know, I think it's more important right now for people to be um, essentially testing these things to understand where they might go wrong and so on. So I think, uh, you know, still alignment work trumps all, um, even at the risk of like morally offending, you know, being like hurting uh, a potential sentient AI. That's, I mean, it's another reason why this thing shouldn't be let loose on the internet yet. Any of these things, like without really understanding what it is that we're actually dealing with, who knows what we we might have summoned, um, and we're just letting it loose unwittingly on on a bunch of innocent people. Do you think we are in an AI arms race, and perhaps that's why these models are being released uh, early? I've, yeah, I think that's almost entirely the the explanation. Um, you know, to some extent, I have s- sympathy for you know the leaders of OpenAI, uh, Microsoft, who, you know, feel like, oh, well, we need to prove ourselves and we've got to justify all the capital we've raised and and we need to make money. So screw it. Let's just, just release it. Like I can appreciate that they're in some extent like trapped in a game, but they are choosing to, you know, they're cho- choosing to trap in, trap themselves in that game. Um, and also, you know, I think it's should require a lot of internal reflection because what they are doing is they are internalizing all the benefits to themselves of you know money fame public adoration you know if these things go really well and completely externalizing all of their downsides and risks to humanity and the biosphere and the light cone which i think is arguably one of the most reprehensible things anyone could do so um yeah <laughs> It's it's definitely an arms race. And I think the, to the extent that perhaps, you know, I, it would be, I would love it if some of the leaders of the AI labs could actually come forth and like talk about the, like the situation a bit more, because, you know, I know they're all aware of it and, but none of them are really, you know, they'll talk about, you know, they'll, they'll be making the right sounds of like, oh, we're concerned about safety. You know, they're saying the right words, but their actions you know, and I, when I say their actions, I mean, like, I'm talking specifically about OpenAI here. Um, I, I've been so far impressed with how DeepMind are handling things, but their actions are not living up to the, the sounds that they are making about safety because uh, they just keep releasing stuff and they keep releasing it earlier and earlier and, and when they're clearly not fully aligned and even more, they're not even really understood. So you could say in in openai's defense if i were to take that position you could say they are trying to do um reinforcement learning from human feedback and they are they are continually um trying to improve their models gradually and and they will make mistakes but they are they are learning from those mistakes um I'm not saying this is my perspective, but one could ask, what is it that's so dangerous about uh, some text? Because all of the text that's outputted, uh, that, that that comes out of uh, the GPT models could have been written in a Word document by a human. So what is it that's so dangerous about these uh, these large language models, or at least potentially dangerous? You know, there's like the the first order effects, which is, you know, they could... Not necessarily like OpenAI's model specifically, but like, you know, Facebook just had their Llama model. Essentially, they just did a lab leak (laughs) where their parameters were somehow got out publicly and are now like on 4chan, for example. Um, So, you know, if if they can't suitably keep control of it, um, 
then others can emulate it and use it to, for example, create um, really highly targeted phishing at unbelievable scale. You know, like phishing attacks tend to happen, you know, there's usually still at least a human writing that. But imagine phishing attacks that are incredibly compellingly written, in fact, better written than probably the average human that would have been writing them. And then on top of that, trained on a body of text about the particular person that you're trying to fish, you know, like scam. Um, good luck, grandma. Like, you know, like it's not just going to be like grandmas and like the most, you know, you know, the, the, the weakest members of society getting preyed on. It's going to affect more and more and more of us. So there's that sort of first order effects. There's also the effects of people's minds being, you know, part of top quality thinking is, we, we, you know, we, when we write, it actually makes us think better. You know, the act of writing and thinking of how to structure an argument and that sort of thing. Or similarly, when we read something and then like thinking through it and making our own notes, that makes us mentally stronger. It reinforces like good thinking processes and so on. and makes us actually like contemplate things. And if we're now completely outsourcing those skills to a machine that will just like summarize a, a hard piece of text like that for us, write a hard email, write a hard, you know, anything that's going to atrophy our own thinking skills, which is another really big problem. Um, for the same reason, like I've, I'm, I minimize the amount I use Google Maps because I always like pr prided myself on my ability to navigate a city, like look at a map, kind of memorize it and then like get around and think what through. And I've noticed that since I've been using Google Maps that I'm not as good as that as I used to be. And I know some people who literally can't do that. Like you could tell them that's north, that's, that's east, west, right. And, and, you know, these are skills that make us very much human and that, you know, some people say, well, you just don't need it anymore. I'm like, okay, but you get out into the woods and you lose your phone, like good luck, you know, and who knows what we're losing by, by atrophying these skills. So that's, that's another, um, effect, but then there's like the more second order, third order ones of, again, because we don't understand how these things work and it seems like there are some very amazing, but also like just inherently very powerful and, and, and inherently unpredictable emergent properties coming out of them. By definition, we're not, there, there might be stuff that they are doing or that will come as a result from these things downstream that we just could never have predicted. And because they're so powerful, we might not be able to control them or, or like turn back the clock um, until incredible damage has been done. So yeah, again, that's like kind of more um, the, like the Pandora's box thing. So uh, yes, plenty, <laughs> the, the, plenty of concerns. And those are just ones off the top of my head. And there's a lot, again, I'm not an expert. There are the people who have thought about this a lot more deeply. And generally, the more deeply people I've spoken to who have thought about it, the more long the list of concerns is. It's worth going back to your point about Facebook losing control about the uh, over the weights of their model and it leaking onto the internet and being available for download. So what's interesting about this case is that it, it takes uh, millions or, or tens of millions of dollars uh, to train it on a lot of specialized hardware with enormous data sets. But once the model is, is, is generated, once you have the weights, then it, it's 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 pretty cheap to run the model. So, for example, the, the weights of of uh, Facebook's uh, language model fits on a normal laptop hard drive and can be run on a normal laptop. Which which means that the 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 power of these models they go from the from the top companies, the top labs in the world, into the hands of of everyone in the world uh, very very quickly. This is perhaps. Uh, 
analogous to everyone in the world being able to synthesize whatever uh, substance they, they want. A novel smallpox that we don't have a cure to, not even, you know, we don't have a vaccine to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So all this leads us to uh, the question uh, that's been asked by Holden Kanofsky, which is, who's the who's the co-CEO of Open Philanthropy. He has a long series of blog posts in which he argues that this century we're in right now is the most important century. It's probably the most important century because this is the century in which we will develop very, very powerful AI. And what we do in this century will determine uh, what happens uh, for a long time in, in, in the future. That's a, that's a very uh, summarized version of his argument. But is, is that something you, you find plausible? Yes, I very much find it plausible. Um, because... You know, I, I appreciate that, like, you know, probably every generation throughout history has felt like this is the most important century, you know, but, and to be fair, like, given the, like, march of technology in general, like, that will have been true. But th this is really the first time where we have harnessed the potential of, like, exponential technology. And by that, like, essentially, like, sort of self-replicating technology, whether it's, like, the ability to synthesize a novel virus um, build AIs that could potentially build more copies of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So to a degree, this is the first time we've harnessed technologies which really are vulnerable to Moloch and to the extent that they are so large that they could wipe out all biological value on earth. It seems given the rate of rate of trend, you know, the, the, the trend line, that is going to come to fruition in either direction. I mean, not just in the next century, I think within the next, certainly the next, f well, high confidence within the next 40 years and possibly even the next 20 years, maybe even the next 10 or the f next five. So um, I think his arguments are extremely sound. I don't think that that means that they're, you know, we should be doomy uh, or like give up, quite the opposite, because the flip side is that if we can get these things right, we could solve almost all problems humanity is facing. We could lift everybody out of poverty. We could eradicate all diseases. We could, you know, we could solve aging, essentially create radical abundance. So it's, you know, it's, it's this, like Toby Ord calls it, you know, correctly, it's the precipice, um, the precipice of either immense good or immense bad. It, it, it's extremely prescient that as many smart people really like put their minds to this and don't just like sort of, you know, go sort of stick their fingers in their ears or do the like sh the, the sort of the shitty defecty thing either and be like, oh, well, I might as well, you know, be part of this until it all goes wrong or whatever. It, 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 so, yes, I agree. <laughs> So humans are uh, a lot smarter than chimpanzees and, and consequently we've been able to achieve a lot more in the world. We've transformed Earth to, to a degree that chimpanzees uh, can, cannot even understand what's going on anymore. Um, and what, what we're projecting here is that uh, AI that's smarter than humans will be able to transform the world in uh, perhaps to a similar degree, uh, conquer deep, uh, very intractable scientific problems such as aging, for example. Is it is it possible that there are diminishing returns to intelligence such that we won't see this fantastic um, improvement again? Because there are some problems that... Um, 
you know, they don't respond to to increased intelligence. Does that even make sense uh, as a as a way of thinking? You know, I think there's. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that. You know, the reason perhaps we've made really fast games with things like large language models is because they're actually, you know, language itself and and problem solving based off language is actually fairly low complexity in terms of like, you know, Kol- Kolmogorov complexity. Like it's, it's, it's you know, language is very compressy, right? If I put, try and put a sentence together, it might be like the, the actual idea com- concepts I have in my head are actually very nebulous and I like hard to sort of simulate. But if you, if I put it into a stream of single words and it's like a kind of very linear thing, you know, maybe that's a fairly low complexity thing compared to, for example, solving aging where you've got like all the emergent properties of like cells and, you know, proteins and like the, the cornucopia of, of cool stuff that's going on inside anybody that, 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 you know, keeps it alive. So it's, it's very possible that that, yes, this, the, 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 that the intelligence that's arising to, to sort of solve language based problems will not translate to other, other real world problems. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have an opinion on whether it, that is or isn't the case. But I think it's it's very plausible in either direction. I think what I'm fishing for is is whether there are problems that cannot be solved no matter how intelligent you are. And and the example that 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 I had in mind was, for example, thinking about North Korea. So North Korea might be a situation that that cannot be solved, or you know, the 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 people of North Korea cannot be liberated no matter how smart you are, simply because. North Korea is entrenched. They have nuclear weapons, and so we could uh, be in a in a sort of absurd situation in which we have radical abundance uh, on a lot of places on Earth, but then pockets of utter misery uh, somewhere on Earth, uh, simply because, yeah, perhaps there are some problems that intelligence uh, intelligence cannot solve. Maybe I just can't imagine it would be North Korea, just because, like, if we have the if we build something so, you know, we develop a super intelligence that literally solves all of our other coordination problems on earth and like literally solves for abundance. I like, I think that making them make, making their nuclear weapons not fire when we need them to not fire will be uh, largely trivial. I don't have a like clear answer of how, but because I'm not a super intelligence, but it just, if we, if we can solve Moloch problems, like all of our other Moloch problems, I, I would be astonished if North Korea is somehow the holdout and their nuclear weapons. Um, yeah. I, I, in terms of the general class of problems, will there be some things that we'll never understand? I mean, again, I I don't know. I, you know, going back to the previous podcast where we talk about win-win, my intuition says that everything is possibly, you know, it, it's possible to make a win-win out of everything, um, which would sort of imply that we can solve all of our problems. Um, whatever the universe throws up, but my logical brain does not have a coherent answer as to why. What I'm perhaps uh, pushing back against a little bit here is this notion that w- once we get to highly advanced AIs, all of our other problems will go away. So we can solve intelligence, and that solves all other problems. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to think through is is in concrete terms. Uh, how is it that we will we will solve uh, all other problems? And of course, as you just mentioned, this is difficult because we are not super intelligences. But it just seems like a there's an underlying assumption here that uh, that super intelligence is 
is almost godlike. And perhaps it, it escapes us a little bit uh, in terms of the concretes of, of how these systems will solve problems. It, well, again, it depends a little bit on our definition of intelligence. So if we're talking about in the like the, the calculation sense, you know, essentially like extending out the IQ chart, that de- I suspect that would be insufficient. Not to toot my own horn, but I did a tweet that I was kind of proud of recently, which was like, we need to, we don't just need to build AGI, we need to build AGW, which is artificial general wisdom. Because wisdom, I think most people would agree, wisdom is something similar to, but not exactly mapping over intelligence. Like it is definitely possible to have someone who is very intelligent, but lacks a lot of like common sense uh, or wisdom and experience about actually how the world works. You know, they might be very, very good at solving physics problems, but are actually very bad at figuring out what the optimal career path for themselves should be or how to navigate, you know, a complex social situation, which is like arguably more like a form of in- emotional intelligence. You know, I think wisdom also in- incorporates those rational intelligence, you know, rationality quotient is another one people talk about argue. So wisdom is is this like, I think a slightly broader category It's another definition of wisdom is like intelligence is knowing how to win a game, but wisdom is knowing which games to play in the first place. Right. So it's like a higher category of knowing. I think it's important that we think about how to build uh, an artificial super wisdom um, almost more than we build a super intelligence. Um, because if it's something that is unbelievably wise, then I think it will be able to solve for abundance. It will, it wouldn't necessarily see us as a threat because it's like, well, I can, of course you guys can carry on. I don't need that. I'm so brilliant. I can go extract my energy from somewhere else. You know, I'm not, I'm going to even going to leave your son alone. You know, maybe I'll take a bit of mercury, but or whatever. And, and actually there's this, I, I want to give a shout out to this, to this group who are, they want to actually build a large language model based on human wisdom um, based on human mild, uh, meaning, um, their, their, their project's going to be called rebuilding meaning. And, you know, just like open AIs or other large language models are built off sort of the, the corpus of text just available on the internet. There's, they want to basically build a large corpus of text of true, like, real humans say, you know, typing in like an example of something that happened to them in the last week or the last year or, or in their lives that was meaningful. So what was, you know, what was the most meaningful thing to you in, in the past week? Yeah, I, I think um, meeting my, um, my wife's uh, brother and, and talking to him, that was meaningful right. to me. Uh, cool. Yeah. So imagine you then like put that into a little, you know, you enter that into a box on a website and that story is, you know, anonymously captured. And then you get a million or a hundred million people to do that. You've got a hundred million copies of this, of these stories and then train a large language model on that. Now that is high complexity stuff, even though it's compressed down into language, but this is high complexity, authentically human, meaningful information that is going to contain some amount of like a large amount of wisdom, certainly more than like your average internet forum or even a, even a scientific paper. Um, cause it's like truly authentic human stuff coming from like a very deep place. Um, and they want to build a large language model of that, which is a super cool idea. Um, so yeah, that would be a sort of, uh, an example of like how we capture human wisdom it would be a super interesting data set to see i i would right? bet that a lot of the entries there would revolve around uh, other people so for example the, the the example that came to mind when you asked me re- revolved around another person i think i i, w- I would predict that a, a large fraction would revolve around uh, people because people like people and 
perhaps there's some lesson for for uh, for AIs in there. All right, Liv, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, very interesting to me. I, I hope you had fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was great. Um, really tough questions, but it was good stuff. <laughs> Thank you.